0: Hey guys, welcome back. Um, I'm doing. I'm going to go into a series now on Paul and the faithfulness of God. I did one on Jesus and the victory God a while back, and I I read the entire book and then recorded, you know, maybe three episodes. I'm going to go way more in depth with this particular series and uh, record as I go. The reason for this is, well, I, I'm wanting to do the next couple. I wanted to do some over the Trinity Because it's the biggest objection To the Christian worldview for Muslims But If I started with that All I could do is just quote the Bible And quote early church fathers' sayings And Quote the ones that could be interpreted as believing in the Trinity And exegeting the Trinity From those early Christian writings Um, And that's entirely rational And It's, you know, that would be fine, but people who don't want to see that within those quotes are going to have their own lens of how to look at it. And so, before we can even look at that particular issue, we need to, like, clear our lens and get inside the head of first century Jews. That's the first step we need to do. And then we can start looking at these, then you can start interpreting text, but you have to have, like, this historical context for what's going on. It's the same way with like everlasting language and fire and uh, these other areas where people are quoting the Old Testament prophets. You need to know what these people were talking about I'll freaking understand what they're saying. I want to observe the first century Jewish worldview and the Greek and Roman one. And I'm going to do that by looking at um, what N.T. Wright points out in this book. And it's... Um, Two volumes, it's like over a thousand pages. I've loved it so far. Um, we'll start with two letters, okay? These are two letters from the ancient world. One of these is written by Pliny. He's a Roman senator, he's a statesman, he's an attorney, so I can respect that. Uh, he's a man of the world. He held the priesthood and other civic appointments, this guy Pliny. The other letter we're going to be looking at is written by Paul the Apostle. Paul, when he's writing this letter, calls himself a prisoner, okay? Both of these letters are very similar in their subject matter, so the differences between them is going to be illuminating. For anyone who wants to do an even deeper dive on this material, get Paul and the Faithfulness of God by N.T. Wright, um... I'm basically just recording all the stuff that I want to remember for the rest of my life from this book and this podcast. But uh, there's even more detail within the book. You know, and I, I'm just going to start doing that whenever I'm like reading a good a good book where I can just, oh, what was in this book I loved? Well, I can just listen to this podcast I recorded and be able to pick up a whole bunch of it. Okay, this is a letter. Uh, now I'm going to go into the letter. This is from Pliny. To uh, Sabinianus, asking that he forgive his freedman for something wrong he did. Okay. Here's the letter. Your freedman, whom you lately mentioned to me with displeasure, has been with me and threw himself at my feet with as much submission as he could have fallen at yours. Okay, So your freedman, there's no name given to this guy. This is me now interjecting. And this is a freed man, not a slave. Okay, and He's submissive. He's bowing down at your... Well, maybe I'll, just, I'll read through the whole letter and then I'll break it down. Okay. So, the uh, following of yours. He earnestly requested me with many tears and even with all eloquence of silent sorrow to intercede for him. In short, he convinced me by his whole behavior that he sincerely repents of his fault. I am persuaded he is thoroughly reformed because he seems deeply sensible in his guilt. I know you are angry with him, and I know too it is not without reason, but clemency can never exert itself more laudably than when there is the most cause for resentment. If he should incur your displeasure hereafter, you will have so much the stronger plea and excuse for your anger as you show yourself more merciful to him now. Concede to his youth, to his tears, and to your own natural mildness of temper. Do not make him uneasy any longer, and I will add, too, do not make yourself so, for a man of your kindness of heart cannot be angry without feeling great uneasiness. I am afraid were I to join my entreaties with this, I should seem rather to compel than request you to forgive him. Yet I will not scruple even to write mine with his. and. Uh, In so much the stronger terms, as I have very sharply and severely reproved him, positively threatening never to interpose again in his behalf. But though it was proper to say this to him, in order to make him more fearful of offending, I do not say so to you. I may perhaps again have occasion to entreat you upon his account, and again obtain your forgiveness, supposing, I mean, his fault should be such as may become me to intercede for. And you to pardon. Farewell. Okay. Let's break down this letter. So I pointed out at the very beginning, he didn't even mention the freedman's name. Okay, your freedman. And he's submissive. He points that out and He's bowing at, at feet. He's bowing, da- bowing down. He says, I want you to treat him like he's doing this before you. Okay, like he's being submissive before you. Um. He goes on, it says, uh, he convinced me his whole behavior, he sincerely repents, okay? He repents that he was wrong, this freed man. Uh, he was wrong to leave, and he admits it. Pliny wants Sabinianus to know this. Oh yeah, he repented. Okay. Um... I'm persuaded he is thoroughly reformed because he seems deeply sensible of his guilt. That's what Pliny says. And here we see ref- what reformed means. Okay, He's gone back to seeing himself and his master in the proper social order. See, Pliny here is trying to restore the status quo. He wants to get things back on track. This is very, very hierarchical Roman society. He wants... One on top, then the next one, then the next one Like it was before, you know Uh, see, I know you're angry with him And I know, too, it is not without reason But clemency can never exert itself more laudably Than when there is the most cause for resentment So basically, Pliny's saying You have the right to be angry You deserve to be mad Um and Pliny says, You once had an affection for this man, and I hope will have again. Meanwhile, let me only prevail with you to pardon him. So basically, I hope you grow to like him again, but at the very least, pardon him. Okay. He says, uh, If you should incur your displeasure hereafter, you have so much the stronger plea and excuse for your anger as you show yourself more merciful to him now. In other words, if you have mercy now, he'll really deserve your wrath if he acts up later on. He's young, he's stupid, you're mild of temper, and when you're angry, it hurts you, so avoid it. You know, don't let yourself be hurt. I don't want to force you to do this. You know, impliedly, though, I could certainly force you to do this as a senator with the might of Rome behind me. And so the social hierarchy is reinforced. Pliny's on top, then Sabinianus, and then this free man. Okay. And basically, he ends kind of with a threat against Sibinianus saying, Yeah, I told the the free man I'd never take up his behalf again, but I might. I just had to lie. Yeah, I told him I wouldn't intercede, but if things go bad, you know, remember that. I'm in charge. So do as I say. I can intercede for him again. It's like he's he's a puppet master, and he's got these two subordinates that... Neither one of them probably know the whole truth of what's going on in Pliny said, and he's kind of working them against each other. In regards to this letter, Wright states, the present letter is remarkable in several ways. We know nothing else about the friend in question, the one Sebinianus, except that he granted the request and earned himself a further letter from the great man that is Pliny. The freedman, In other words, the slave whom Sabinianus had freed, but who is still clearly dependent on him, has got himself into trouble. Knowing Pliny to be a friend of his master, he's gone to him for help. There then ensues a nice little comedy of manners worthy almost of Jane Austen, though without the dry humor. All three dancers retain their place in the implicit social hierarchy, with each making the moves appropriate to those places. Pliny's at the top of the social pile, giving lordly instructions and emphasizing the fact by saying he's only making a request. Sabinianus is in the middle, obviously in command of the freedman, but presumably a little in awe of the great Pliny, and eager to maintain friendship with such a man. The freedman who remains unnamed is no longer a slave, but is nevertheless socially near the bottom of the pile, at the mercy of those above him. Now I'm going to read a letter from Paul to Philemon. I want you to compare these in your head. The majority of scholars agree that this letter was written after Philemon's slave, Onesimus, had run away. Wright states, quote, Philemon was a householder, probably in Colossae, that's Western Asia, Asia Minor, who had been converted under Paul's ministry, probably in Ephesus, that's also in Western Asia Minor. A lot of this early Christian stuff was happening in Western Asia Minor. Paul had not been to Colossae himself, but many from that town would find their way the eighty miles or so down the Lycus Valley to Ephesus. Um I'm gonna say you, you obviously can't see this, but I have a map here and you can see this river connecting the two cities in Asia Minor with mountains all around, so this river would be like a highway compared to the mountains. Alright, continuing with Wright's quote. The great metropolitan, the seaport of the region, Onesimus, one of Philemon's slaves, had run away, as slaves often did, perhaps helping himself to some money, again, as runaway slaves often did. In this hypothetical narrative, Onesimus made his way to Paul in prison, presumably deliberately in seeking help. Okay. Now, this is the letter to Philemon from Paul. So, Paul's just been greeted by this Onesimus who ran away from Philemon. Okay, And Paul's letter starts with Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus. Already here, this is odd. He claims he's a prisoner. He's a prisoner with Jesus Christ, being in the genitive. So, he's of Jesus Christ. He is... A part of this favored group, in other words, being a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Wright notes, here is the first rather shocking dissimilarity. Paul is in prison. In fact, he mentions not as though it decreases his social standing, which naturally it did, but as though it gives him a higher status rather than a lower one, end quote. Paul here is boosting, boosting his credibility with a socially demeaning a socially demeaning status. That's interesting. Okay, continue. And Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker. This is interesting because he's calling him a fellow worker. And um, agape to, kai sunergo, that's agape in the adjectival form, loved one, beloved. Sunergo means, soon is the prefix where we get the word synergy, like and ergo is work, so it's like together worker. So beloved together worker. Okay, Too. Also, Atphia, our sister, and Archibus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Okay, this is interesting because you can tell that he does not want the letter to be read only by Philemon. He wants the whole church to hear it. This is something Wright didn't even point out. There's going to be stuff I'd noticed that Wright didn't even point like that. The, uh, looking at the Greek of those original words, that's me. So if you're listening to this podcast, I want you to just take a minute think about how cool I am. Because I was able to tell you some stuff about Greek. And tell you that this is written to the whole the whole household. I'm just kidding, but yeah. Alright, there's something here that will benefit the community alongside the additional, uh, you know... It, aside from just affecting Philemon, it's going to affect everybody. Aside from just Philemon and Onesimus and their relationship. We'll get into all that. Alright, okay. grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Curio, Curio Isu Cristo. Thanksgiving and prayer. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers. Because I hear past participle, so it may be am hearing, about your love, agape, agape, for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. So he starts with calling him beloved, okay, and then says he's thankful because he's so loving. And I'll deviate to my own translation of the Greek here. Rigidly, I am hearing your love and your faith and, which you have toward the Lord Jesus and into all of the set-apart people. okay. He is thanking God that Philemon loves and has faith in Jesus and in the other people who are in Christ. So we can tell whatever he's going to want Philemon to do, he wants to remind Philemon that he is a loving and trusting person toward the people and toward Jesus. Before he... he you know, sets his, his desire for Philemon in front of him. I'm going to provide my own translation of verse 6 so you can see how clunky, it's going to be clunky if you're just going, you know, word for word translation. But that's kind of what I want to do because it, you'll see. Then I'll give you a clean, crisp translation in normal English after that. okay. In order that the companionship of your faith Cause your knowledge of all good things to become powerful in us, into Christ. Like what? In us, into Christ? Yeah, that's basically what the Greek looks like with the ace. But um, here's a more English sounding translation now that isn't word for word getting the idea. I hear you're loving and faithful and loving toward Jesus and his people. And there's a reason I hear about this, how loving and faithful you are, Philemon. There was a purpose here, a lesson for everybody. I hear this in order that the loving relationship, koinonia in Greek, that is from your faith, do something. It needs to do something. You had this slave who ran away. You have this loving faith. Now that loving faith needs to act. What do I want it to do? I want it to teach us. A lot of good things. Making us Jesus-y. Let's get Jesus-y, Philemon. When you grab all of Paul's little interruptions and prepositions and form them into complete thoughts, you get a message kind of like that. So both of those are my translation. The first one is just very clunkily from the Greek. The other one is like, for some reason, these ancient Greek writers were like, oh, this is fun to just like have run-on sentences. If you start and use ambiguous prepositions, but if you start filling out the language, the logic flows into something like that. Hey, you're this. I hear that you're lo- this loving guy, and you have loving relationship with people. And uh, the reason I hear that is so that we can learn a lesson here, and you can think about that as we go forward. Kind of like setting the mood, you know. Um. Okay, verse 7. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. So Paul sets up a precedent. Your love is what makes me proud of you. I'm going to go to my own translation here for a second. Of Harangar uh, Polain Eskon Kai Paraklesin. Epite agape su otita. I don't need to read all this Greek, and I don't have the accents in this anyway, so I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. I'm having so much joy and comfort because of the way your love for the set apart people, the the agion, uh, okay. That's a lot of times that's translated holy, but holy just means set apart. I'm having so much joy and comfort because of the way your love for the set-apart people refreshes their guts. That's the original Greek, is guts. The, uh, uh... It's, uh, (laughs) splogna. That's guts. It refreshes their guts. His love makes them feel good in their bowels. The place you feel emotion, okay, your splogna. You know... Uh, When I was taking the bar exam, I used the restroom, and the stressed-out other test-takers were all having stress diarrhea in the stalls around me. You could smell it in the air. They were feeling it in their guts, okay? They're feeling the uh, stress of the bar exam in their guts. This intense kind of emotion, but positive, okay? That's what Paul's talking about here. That's the deep, guttural refreshment that Paul praises Philemon for giving the set-apart people of the Lord Jesus. And it's a shame the NIV here leaves out brother, I noticed when I was reading it. Refresh the hearts of the Lord's people. So he calls him brother again at the end of, this, of the sentence in the original Greek. He says, Adelphi, You're so loving, dude. You have me jazzed. You make all the church members happy in their guts. Okay, let's Continue on. Therefore, here Paul has laid his foundation and is now, here we get to the, the therefore. So this is, he's laid his latest foundation, you make people happy in their guts. Now this is what I want from you. Although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you. For my son, my son, Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. The Greek here is, um, well, I don't need to read you the Greek, but here's my translation, because my trans there's there's graphic language here that you just kind of miss with these like English translations. I beg you concerning my young child, who I birthed. While in these chains, okay. The English flattens out that graphic metaphorical language. I'm in pain with chains, but my joy, in but to my joy, I had a child. Is basically what's going on. Now, is he just being manipulative with all this familial language? My brother, and this guy's my child, and um, you know, I could order you, but you know, I want to talk out of love. Is he playing games to get what he wants? This is what Wright says. One can already hear in the background at the very suggestion of such a difference between Pliny and Paul a whirring of cogs in the postmodern imagination. Yes, yes, think many readers. This simply reveals Paul as a master of manipulation. The hermeneutic of suspicion casts its usual wet blanket over all possibilities other than the reinscribing of narratives of money, sex, and particularly power. And it is power that people often see at work here. Sometimes this proposal is part of the contemporary drive to make Paul simply yet one more Hellenistic thinker and writer. He can't, people think, be as different as all that. It must really be about social manipulation. To this, the only real answer is, how might we tell? And the answer is through a more thorough study, not only of the history and theology, but of the entire worldview which there comes to the surface. Such study must be as broad as an entire worldview always is and as deeply rooted as we can make it in an actual close reading of the text, end quote. So with that, we return to the text. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. So he's saying that about Onesimus to Philemon. I want to point out here not only names Onesimus, his, Onesimus is being named here, okay? Remember, Pliny never gave the freedman a name. But also, I want to point out that Paul's playing with this name. The word anesimus basically means useful. Many slaves were given names that reflected their function or ability in this time period. Well, uh, once he was useless to you, but now he is using uh, a and eukraston. Quoting right now, strongly echoing Christos, normally it is assumed pronounced with a long eye, Onesimus was useless, but now is useful. He was formerly non-Christian, but now is fully Christian. This is not wordplay for the sake of it. This is rhetoric in the service of the underlying theology. Onesimus is in Christ. Christ is, by his spirit, in Onesimus. That is the foundational that's foundational to the appeal Paul makes to Philemon, end quote. Okay, I got the cart in front of the horse there, quoting right. Let's get back to the text, and then I'll go deeper into what I just said. Okay, verse 12. I am sending him who's my very heart back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that I could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not seem forced but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that so you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he's done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. Okay. Wow. That's com. Looking back to Pliny, Pliny says, You deserve to be angry, and if he acts up, you can be angrier. Paul says, Whatever he's done, charge it to me. I will repay it. What is it that made these two men so drastically different, their worldviews? Verse 19. uh, I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my splanka, my guts, in Christ. Confidence of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one more thing, prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner, in Christ Jesus sends you greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Damas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. Turning back to the part where he says he will pay Onesimus' death, Wright comments, the word for charge, eloka, reckoned, the same root from which Paul's more famous account of reckoning righteousness and reckoning yourself dead to sin is derived. We might muse that since one possible punishment for a badly behaved or runaway slave was crucifixion itself, Paul may even be alluding to that. If he deserves the cross, then I'll take it for him. Paul is not only urging and requesting, but actually embodying what he elsewhere calls the ministry of reconciliation. God was in the Messiah, reconciling the world to himself, he says in 2 Corinthians 5.19. Now we dare to say God was in Paul, reconciling Onesimus and Philemon. Paul doubtless learned a great deal from the rhetorical schools and practices of his day, but the heart of his technique of persuasion was a theological belief learned from the Messiah himself, whose identification with his people meant that their sins were reckoned to him, and his death and resurrection reckoned to them. A whole lot of switching of what's owed to who. Paul does not say, as Pliny does, he seems genuinely penitent, so you'd better let him off. He says, put it on my account. End quote from Wright. Paul isn't the overpowering puppet master that we see Pliny being. In a world with strict social classes, plebeians, slaves, etc., we see Paul calling them all brothers. We're one family. Wright calls this the Messianic unity. They're all one in Christ. The koinonia, that loving fellowship that comes from being in Christ, transcends the old Roman social order and all the other social orders. Eis Christo, into Christ. I translated that let's get jesus up above. Eis Christo. Let's get Jesus-y, Philemon. It is as Paul says in Galatians, there's no longer Jew or Greek, there's no longer slave or free, there's no male or female. You're all one in the Messiah, Jesus. Eis Cristo. Now you're one. That unity, as we'll see, is tied up with the Jewish concept of monotheism, election, and eschatology. What? Yes, the unity that we have overlaps with monotheism, eschatology, and election. Um, And we'll figure out what I mean by all that as we continue in this series. Thank you guys for stopping by. I'll see you next time.